Corinthians chapter 5 while I'm rambling. Um, yesterday we had the opportunity, my daughter Susan, who most of you know, um, had her final senior recital. That was traumatic, my last child, getting ready to graduate from college. The recital was not traumatic. Very tired. Uh, the recital was amazing, and she did an incredible job. And, and as a dad, one of the last things that she did, one of the last songs that she performed, was the one that we traveled down there for, for her audition. You know, So that just seeing the full um, picture come together. And it wasn't just like four years of hard work. If you all know Susan, her first recital, I think, was when she was six years old. So this is a, a lifetime for her. Of, of working and practicing and using the gifts of the Lord. Um, you know, we, we so often think, well, I don't have that gift or I have that gift. We all have gifts given to us by the Lord, but it's also important that we exercise those gifts and use those gifts so that they'll grow. And she is an incredible example to her dad in doing that. So blessed um, family. We had uh, a meal together with all my kids and their spouses and my parents and Nicole's parents and, well, my, my mom and my step-uncle, for those of you that don't know that story. My mom married my uncle after my dad died. It's biblical. Um, but that was awesome, getting together the whole family. That, that doesn't happen often. Um, and then some of you, some of you traveled down to uh, be a part of that. If you, if you didn't know it or get an invite, don't be so mean to us, you know? Uh, well, it, it was four and a half hours away. So, uh, you know, some, some of the folks that have poured into Susan and uh, built her up and encouraged her came down. I, I, uh, I don't even want to talk about it. I can't, words can't express how grateful I am for that. So we'll just keep loving you back. Um, I think that's it. Second Corinthians chapter 5. Verse 1 says, For we know... That if our earthly house, this tent, is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this we groan, earnestly desiring to be clothed with our habitation which is from heaven. If indeed, having been clothed, we shall not be found naked. For we who are in this tent, for we who are in this tent, where are we here? Is there a verse 4 there? Go ahead and hit verse 4 for me. For we who are in this tent groan, being burdened, not because we want to be unclothed, but further clothed, that mortality might be swallowed up by life. Now he who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who also has given us the Spirit as a guarantee, so we are always confident, knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. We are confident, yes, well pleased, rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. Would you guys pray with me? Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word. We're so grateful for our family here. Um, this family that has been united only because of you and only in you. And uh, the Lord is just so powerful and 
gives purpose to our life and strength and encouragement and accountability. And Lord, as we gather together this morning to let your word go through us, we ask that you'd speak, um, convict, call, strengthen, encourage, all the, all the different things you do with it, Lord, that this time would be profitable and be used for the purpose of your kingdom, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. I forgot one more thing. Uh, I've, I've been told over the last couple of weeks, just by coincidence, this wasn't like a, a new gimmick or new thing, but I used some props in sermons. And I've actually got a tremendous amount of feedback on the props, not the actual sermons. Um, and and I, I notice, well, feedback from you, like you guys saying things, but also feedback, like just timing. I got a little timer on here. I should start that or we'll be here all day. Um, that, that tells me how far we are into the message. And I also kind of gauge like how deep we get before some of you fall asleep. And, I, and I've noticed that the props really improve that. So I have some props here this morning. Uh, I'll take me a minute to explain some of this stuff. But get these set up here. Don't worry about the camera. I know that's not going to follow me. Or is it shining? Is it? Got a spaghetti strainer here. Today's Palm Sunday. Got a palm. And one more um, candy for people in the front row. So, so don't, don't share those with anyone behind you. Sugar keeps her up. Okay. We're good. I find that when we go through the scriptures week after week, and, and last week we took a break, we went to a different passage, but even when we're, we're in it, Week after week, we get together during the week and we talk about it in our growth groups. If, if uh, you're not in a growth group, we're taking three weeks here and then we're starting a new series. You, you guys really ought to be in growth groups. It's not a guilt thing because maybe you don't need it, but I'm sure somebody else in the group needs you. And uh, that's, that's kind of the power of those things. So I encourage you guys strongly. We'll have those sign-ups out there next week. But when we read through the Bible, even going line upon line and precept upon precept, um, sometimes even when we're meditating on it afterwards, and that's another thing that I love about the growth groups, that we sit down and we do those questions just between us and the Lord and reflect back on what was spoken on Sunday. But even doing that, and this is not an indictment for you guys. Um, maybe it's confession time for me, but we tend to forget about the context of our passage. And um, tend to focus on us, our wants, our needs, or maybe better said, our needs and our greeds. Or if life isn't completely living up to our standards and our expectations, some of us then have a tendency to focus on 
me, myself, and I. And we take that passage and we just think about it surrounding us. So this morning, I want to just briefly remind you kind of how we got to where we are um, and where Paul was, the, the circumstances and more so even his headspace when he wrote this. Paul's ministry at this point was shaking things up. It had had an impact. People knew who he was. People were getting saved. It was perceived to be a threat to the old guard. So the religious leaders, they opposed Paul. They were going after him and not just hurting his feelings or saying things that made him feel like he was different from everyone else or no longer fit in with everyone else. But they wanted him dead. And and when we read his words, it sounds like he thought it likely to happen. Back in the first chapter of 2 Corinthians, uh, chapter 1, verse 8, we read this. It says that we were burdened beyond measure, above strength, so that we despaired even of life. Yes, we had the sentence of death in ourselves. Tough times, he might say. When we last gathered in this book a couple of weeks ago, in the fourth chapter, Paul was talking about this incredible treasure that we as believers carry around in clay pots, or what he called earthen vessels. The clay pots being us, that we would know that that amazingly awesome treasure wasn't us, but it was Jesus inside of us. And Paul says later in chapter 4, verse 10, always carrying about... Good, help me out. Always carrying about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life of Jesus also may be manifest in our body. One more, please. For we who live are always delivered to death for Jesus' sake, that the life of Jesus may also be manifest in our mortal flesh. You get that? For, for, we, who are, for we who live are always, it says, delivered to death for Jesus' sake. That sounds exciting, doesn't it? Uh, did you mean to write maybe, Paul? Or there's a slight chance, or there's really fine print scrolling at the bottom of our Bibles that say this is a possible side effect, delivered to death. Paul says, nope. We who live are always delivered to death. No wonder he starts this epistle, this letter, with burdened beyond measure. Despaired even to life. Yes, we had the sentence of death in ourselves. Please, Paul, don't sugarcoat it for us. We can take it. But then he goes on, and if you remember last week, he gives us some perspective in how not to lose heart, even in circumstances that were crushing. Look at verse 18 in chapter 4. Why we do not look at things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Paul came to the place where he began to understand that there was more to life than what he could see, more to life than what he could understand, more to life than the temporary things in front of us today. 
And he, he built on this. It wasn't just a snapshot in this one letter, in the letter to the Colossians. He expanded past this idea of don't look at the temporary things to, and, and goes on to tell us what things to look at, what to focus on. In Colossians 3, starting in verse 2, he says, set your mind on things, what's it say? Above, not on things on the earth. For you died and your life is hidden with Christ and God. When Christ, who is our life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. That's an eternal perspective, which actually weaves in perfectly to what Jim shared with us last week out of Philippians. Um, Chapter 1, verse 21, For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Paul was all about Jesus. It wasn't a part of his life. It was his life. Paul understood that Jesus died for him so that Paul could live for Christ. If you guys ever talk to your friends, and I, I mean your non-Christian friends, you know, sometimes we separate those worlds and you know, play softball with our non-Christian friends and have barbecues with our Christian friends. But have you ever asked them or talked to them about what they think actually happens? And I know it's kind of a heavy conversation today and it might uh, make you feel awkward. But have you ever talked to them about what they think happens to us when we die? You got enough candy? I got a refill. Okay, all right. I, I actually used to kind of be amazed at all the different things that were out there, all the different perspectives, all the different beliefs, all the, the, the crazy thoughts, some of them, about what happens after we die. Some were taught that when we die, it's a lot like unplugging your toaster. You know, there's, there's no life left in it. Lights out, it's over. From dust to dust, that's actually called annihilationism the belief that everything is over. And that doesn't sit well with most. You know, we want to have meaning in our life. We want to feel like there's some purpose in this life. Things like rewards and punishments are big deals to us. Right? We, we uh, get frustrated at times because those things don't seem to be measured out fairly in this lifetime. So we, we root for the good guys and we want justice for the bad guys. And some reconcile that with ideas like reincarnation. You guys have heard of that. If you were a a saint in this life and serving the poor and taking care of the needy, visiting the sick, those kinds of things, maybe you'll come back as like a dolphin, you know, or a koala bear. Or you're perfectly positioned in the right family to become the first woman president of the United States. Be, Be at some advantage, who knows, but if you were a little turd in this life, I'm sorry. If you were bad in this life, um, if life was all about you and you were pushing and shoving to get your way, to get ahead of everyone else, you're destined to come back as like an earthworm or a maggot or something. If you were really, really bad, maybe a cat. I don't know. <laughs> but for years, focus on the props. But for years... 
they were movements actually in religious circles. Some of you guys are probably too young to remember this. But for a long time in different churches, there was a thing taught called soul sleep. And, and the Bible sometimes refers to sleep or to, to death as sleep. But there's no such thing biblically as soul sleep. And that's the idea that when you die, you're just in this like perpetual state of peace and rest, uh, like sleep until God gives you an assignment or calls you up to paradise. The Bible tells us in Hebrews that it is appointed to men to die once and then the judgment. And I can tell you that the passage Jim shared with us last week, this big struggle that Paul was talking about in that passage, this idea that to live is Christ and to die is gain and I'm, I'm torn between the two, that was not choosing between life here on earth and being used to save souls from hell and just taking a real peaceful nappy, you know, until God had something for him to do, doing nothing while he waited to get into paradise. Some of you actually grew up in a church that taught you that there was a place that they call purgatory, uh, where you can go as a temporary holding place if you were just a little bit naughty and wait there until somebody back on earth prayed you out and prayed you into heaven. Purgatory is a lie. It's actually a false doctrine and it's not in the Bible. So all kinds of different ideas. Then in the past, all were varied and different groups believed different things, but I think the more I look at them, especially in recent years, I think they've all kind of morphed into one. This, I think, I hope. You know, what happens after you die? Well, I think or I hope. Or when I die, this is where I'm going to be. Or this is what I'd like it to be. And all that boils down to, I'm the Lord of my life, so I ought to be able to get to make up my own heaven. And whatever you really, really liked down here, heaven will just be more like that. Don't split the video there. Because it's not true. And I don't think it's just my friends that feel this way when I talk to them about those things. But if you look at social media... Actually, I don't want to encourage anybody to look at social media. Um, if you talk to your friends, even at a funeral, uh, a funeral of someone that wasn't a Christian, you'll hear things like, man, I can just see Jimmy now, up there in heaven, riding on his, on his Harley around some serious corners up in the clouds. And... and you're sitting there just perplexed. No, Jimmy's, Jimmy's not up there riding a heavenly Harley. We're, we're talking about Jimmy who just got shot robbing a liquor store, right? No, he's, he's probably not doing that. Or I can just see Mikey jealous of him, the, the jumbo bass he's probably pulling in this morning. I'm sure if Mikey was still here, he'd be skipping church to go haul in some bass this morning. But no, Mikey's not up pulling fish from paradise ponds up in heaven this morning. He might be at a fry, but not a fish fry. What's consistent, though, what saddens me when I hear those things is that it really is, I think, I hope, 
or I don't know. And Paul starts our chapter this morning, chapter 5, with, for we know. Those are the words that he begins with, for we know that if our earthly house, this tent, is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. This is what kept Paul from being crushed, from not completely despairing, from not losing heart. He knew something. Not think, not hope. Paul says, we know that if this earthly house, this tent, is destroyed, in the if there, in that first line, it is not, maybe I won't die. You know, 10 out of 10 of us die. Paul is saying, if, if Jesus comes back first, that's awesome. But if he doesn't, that's no problem at all. Because I don't wonder, I don't fear, I know, Paul says. I know we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. So what am I supposed to set my mind on now in this world of, of, of trouble? The things that are above, Paul says, not the things on earth. The things which aren't seen, not the things that are seen. Set your minds on the things that are eternal in the heavens. Paul says, Christian, we know. We know where we're going and, and we know what happens after life on this earth ends. And guys, this isn't just Paul trying to give a New Testament pep rally to the church in Corinth. Those of you that have been doing the, the chronological Bible readings with us each morning, if you think way back to January in the book of Job, one of the first books of the Bible uh, written, Job says in chapter 19, look at this, for I know, think about the circumstances in Job's life, for I know that my Redeemer lives and he shall stand at last on the earth, and after my skin is destroyed, help me out, brothers, after my skin is destroyed, this I know, that in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold. And not another, how my heart yearns within me. Christian, church attender, Online viewer, do you know this? Regardless of the trials that you're facing today, do you have an unshakable confidence in the things to come? Do you have this hope of heaven? Are you like Paul, looking and living for the return of Jesus Christ? That again is what he meant by if our tent is destroyed. Paul was living with expectation that Jesus could come to rapture his church, not just any day, but any second, in the twinkling of an eye. Do we believe that? Do we really believe it? And do our lives look like we believe it? To those looking on, are we heavenly-minded? Let me ask you this. 
It's Sunday morning. At any time throughout your day today, upon waking up this morning, did you think today could be the day? Or as we gathered here this morning and and we're worshiping our King, Lord, as I sing these songs to you this morning with my friends, would you come back for us now? Do you believe that's a reality, church? Paul lived with expectation to see Jesus in his lifetime. But if he were to die before that happened, he says, no big deal. Because I know what is to come and where I'll go. I don't want Jim making fun of me for not making progress in the chapter. So, verse 2. Actually, I want to look at one more thing in verse 1. All right. For if we know... That if our earthly house, my job is to make him look good. (laughs) For if we know that if our earthly house, this tent, is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. The last chapter, I mentioned it earlier today, Paul called us earthen vessels, right, or clay pots. Some of us are cracked pots. In chapter 5, he describes us as tents, And speaks of our lives as being destroyed, similar to like how the wind or your kids might knock down your tent and make it collapse. You might remember that Paul himself was a tent maker, right? That's how Paul put groceries on the table, so he could do ministry. Those of you that have gone camping, and I mean real camping, okay, in a tent, not pulling around your portable houses, is that what they call glamping? Or is that like hotels? I don't know. But real camping, tent on the ground. Um, you guys know that tents don't last forever. They fray over time. They leak, right? They tear. And what a great comparison to make to these tents. These tents that our spirit inhibits these tents that allow us to express ourselves and and be mobile, but they just don't last forever. Paul says there is something coming that is so much better. Not new and improved, not made with hands, but made by God and meant to last forever. And Paul didn't just think these things or hope these things. They are the word of God, the promise of God. Jesus said in in John chapter 14, beginning in the first verse, he says, Let not your heart be troubled. If you believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Assurance from Jesus if you believe in him. I think it's a little bit weird when we, we read that in the Bible. We read about mansions in the Bible and immediately some great big luxury resort comes to mind. For me, it, was, it used to be like trout streams running through my living room. You know, maybe a, a waterfall coming down from your balcony. Like we're all going to have these giant 
castles in heaven, isolated from other people. Maybe that does sound like heaven to some of you. (laughs) But I'm not sure that's what it's really going to be like. As a comparison, I'm going from a fraying, torn-up tent to an eternal mansion. And I can't wait to find out what it's going to be like. And apparently it's going to deliver me from the earthly groans that I've developed with age. Verse 2, Jim. For in this we groan, earnestly desiring to be clothed with our habitation, which is from heaven. Paul says we, we long for more than that. I know I haven't made much progress in our chapter. And everything in this chapter is so important. But I, I can't read what I've read and talk about the things I've talked about uh, without asking a question. I think we spend most of our lives avoiding. And maybe it comes up at funerals. And, and honestly, I don't think it does anymore. Not most of the time. Not, not most of the ones I've attended. certainly does at the ones I, I do. But I'm going to ask it, and not because I'm a pastor. I should say not because I'm a, a Christian and I have a responsibility to ask the question, to put it out there. But I, I really care about your answer. Because whether you know it or not, whether you believe it or not, there are no greater stakes. And your response to this question has eternal consequences. And here it is. Do you know where you're going to go when you die? And it, it might seem funny to you to ask that in a church. We assume everybody knows the answer to that question. I can't assume your salvation. I don't know who's watching online. I don't know who might watch this 10 years from now or five minutes from now after we get raptured out of here. And all that's left for the world is, is these books and I was going to say some tapes, some stuff online. I don't know how it works. Nick does, but he'll be with me in heaven. It, it used to be that we would ponder this, maybe not admit it to our friends, maybe not talk about it, but alone at night in the dark of our room or our cell, I've had a lot of conversations with people about this in a jail cell. We would consider it. And, and today our, our, our world is so apathetic, so blinded by the God of this world, so distracted by the things of this world. This question isn't asked enough. This conversation isn't had enough. It doesn't have to be antagonistic or waiting to hit them with the truth. Hear their answer and, and, wow, how'd you come to believe that? That's interesting. Tell me more about it. You better care about the answer to this question. Jesus died over this so that our responses could be different. We're going to talk a lot about that next Sunday. See, the Bible says that we actually have, individually, 
we have to answer this question during this lifetime. And your time to do so, your time to, to answer this question is limited. We can talk about what you think or how you hope, but there's just one truth. And it's found in this book. Jesus says in John 14.6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to me, no one comes to the Father except through me. Does that sound exclusive? Narrow? Yeah. Not one of many ways or, or one of a few ways. There's only one way, singular way to eternal life in heaven. And that is through the birth, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ and placing your full faith and trust in him for your salvation. Then you can answer that question. Then you can know what's next. Actually, you can, you can know what's next even if you don't choose Jesus. Well, that's a dumb choice because that's eternal as well. Death, according to the Bible, if you dig into this book, death is described as a separation. Right? For the Christian, death or physical death is the separation of our souls from our bodies or this tent that we've talked about today. Spiritual death is the separation of the soul from God. And that lasts forever. Forever being conscious of the choice that you made. Your choice. In a place called hell. Again, come next week. You'll hear more and more about how God made salvation possible through Jesus Christ. Come hear how Jesus defeated death for all who receive him. He says in, in Revelation chapter 1, this, this is what Jesus says about himself. I am he who lives and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of Hades and death because he defeated death. For those that don't choose Jesus, death on this earth, our last breath here is the buzzer. Death is the end of your opportunity to receive the grace of God. Salvation through his son, Jesus Christ. For the Christian, Paul says we know. Right? Death is just a transition from this life to the next. And, and you can know that. Verse 2 again. For in this we groan, earnestly desiring to be clothed, with our habitation which is from heaven. If indeed, having been clothed, we shall not be found naked, for we who are in this tent groan. Being burdened, not because we want to be unclothed, but further clothed, that mortality may be swallowed up by life. Because Paul had confidence, because he knew what was coming, that he would be with Jesus, he longed for it to happen. A lot of us spent most of our lives fearing death. This was something Paul looked forward to. So his groans weren't just aches and pains of aging. It was a longing for heaven. Twice this week, I saw pictures that broke my heart. Actually, more than twice. I watched the news one day. 
But twice I, I saw pictures of, of two women. One was an aging actress and, and one wasn't. But they were pictures that were very obvious that they uh, tried to patch up the tent. And they got cut and sewn trying to preserve something that was never, ever built to last. It saddened me. I'm not saying we shouldn't take care of our bodies. It certainly improves the quality of our life. But there comes a time when it's time to pack up the tent. Verse 5 says, Now he who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who also has given us the Spirit as a guarantee, so we are always confident, knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. We are confident, yes, well-pleased, rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. I recently sold my beloved truck. And, and when a guy called me that was interested in the truck and asked me questions about it, I wanted some surety that he was sincere, that he was going to follow through, right? I didn't want to stop advertising my truck or pull the signs off it until I knew that his promise was good. So as a guarantee that he was going to follow through and come up with the rest of the money, he gave me $1,000 as a, as a promise or as a surety. That was his guarantee. We do the same, actually, with engagement rings today. Right? We, we take a ring and, and we give it to our beloved. And with that, we say, I'll, I'll do as I promise you I'm going to do. I'll be faithful to you. I'll walk down that aisle with you on whatever day you tell me we're going to do that. <laughs> but that's, that's my promise of what's going to happen. The Holy Spirit is, is that promise for us. Our guarantee that when we are absent from this body, we will be in his presence for all of eternity. And Paul goes on in verse 9, he starts with a therefore. Because of all this stuff, because of all this that I've written, Paul says, therefore we make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be well-pleasing to him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Knowing, therefore, the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. We persuade men. But, but we are well-known to God, and I trust, I also trust we are well-known in your consciousness. When Paul talks here about the judgment seat, of Christ. He's not speaking of the great white throne judgment. You guys, I'm sure, have heard of. We read about that in the book of Revelation. That judgment, the great white throne judgment, is for unbelievers, those that go to their death without being born again in Jesus, without asking God to forgive their sins, without accepting the payment that Jesus made by living a sinless life dying a horrific death and defeating death when he rose again on the third day. The judgment for unbelievers is actually in Revelation chapter 20. And that says, Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat on it from whose face 
the earth and heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, the small and the great, standing before God, and books were open. It says books were open. And another book was open, and this is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. The sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one according to his works. Verse 14. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. There is one way, again, a singular way to avoid the great white throne judgment, and that is by having your name written in the Lamb's book of life. To accept and receive the finished work of the Lamb. But for the believer, there's no judgment. There is, but it's another judgment. We don't go to the great white throne judgment because our sins have already been judged. So believers, Christians, go to what Paul is talking about in our chapter. They, they go to the Bema seat, and this is a judgment of rewards. So 2 Corinthians 5.10 says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad, according to the things done the actions that we've taken according to what he has done, whether good or bad, right? The things that are done and why we've done them, our our intentions or our motives, were our motives good or bad? Sometimes we do good things for the wrong reasons. And for others, you do nothing that's not, let me just look at the camera, Uh, do nothing that's not from selfish motivation. That's part of the Bema seat too. Figuring out the why. So according to this, you could become a Christian and still live a wasted life. But, did you know that the Lord sees all that you do? He sees it all. And and when we appear before him, we'll be rewarded for it. And check it out, it's April. He's not like an IRS agent. You don't have to have receipts and proof of everything that you've done. Once your name is written in that Lamb's Book of Life, he keeps track of it all. All of the things that you've ever done for the Lord that you think have gone unnoticed. Or better yet, people that you've served and it went unappreciated. Christian, God did not miss it. God saw it. Hebrews 6.10 says, For God is not unjust to forget your work and labor of love which you have shown toward his name and that you have ministered to the saints and do minister. God knows God sees. Verse 12, back in 2 Corinthians 5, says, For we do not commend ourselves again to you, but give to you the opportunity to boast on our behalf, that you may have an answer for those who boast in appearance 
and not in heart. So just quickly, Paul makes another comparison concerning motives here. Those who were sincere in their ministry and those who served with a wrong heart or a wrong motive. Verse 13, he says, For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. Or if we are of sound mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ compels us. Look up that word. The love of Christ compels us. Because we judge thus, that if one died for all, then all died, and he died for all, that those who live should no longer... He's talking about us. And he died for all that those who live should no longer for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. This is what Paul was talking about when he said to live is Christ and to die is gain. That we're compelled from love to no longer live for ourselves but to live for him. So, those of you that aren't in growth groups, those of you that are in growth groups, those of you that are going to be in growth groups, how can we live for Jesus today? Look at a prop if you have to. They got nothing to do with this message. I'm not into fleshly entertainment. How can we live for Jesus today? I want to know what that might look like. I want you to know what that might look like because if we're not thinking about that, if we're not asking ourselves that question, then we're not doing it probably. It it starts right here with all of us. How can we live for Jesus? And we ought to be able to tell each other. I ought to be shutting you guys down on what that might look like. Laying down our lives for others. Look back at verse 11 in your chapter. I don't have the slide, but knowing the terror of the Lord, do we persuade men? Do we tell others about Jesus? Are we persuading others to, to come to Christ? This, this last verse, if you can go to verse 15, is sometimes not interpreted correctly the and he died for all part. Does not mean that because Jesus loves everyone and he came and died on the cross that everyone gets to go to heaven now. That's another false doctrine called universalism. And it's a lie. We must confess that we're sinners and ask God to save us not based on anything that we've done but because Jesus died for us because of what he did for us, his death and resurrection. It it is a big enough sacrifice to pay the penalty of sin and defeat death for everyone, but we still need to ask him. And because he died for us, we need to live for him. I said to look up compelled, but while we're on definitions, what does persuade mean? If we're supposed to talk to others about Jesus and persuade them, let me save you some time. You guys have caused me to run late. 
to cause someone to believe something, especially after a sustained effort to convince. Let me encourage you, don't do your sustained efforts with your lips. Love them, serve them. Provide a sound reason for someone to do something. That's another definition of persuade. Live a life that they might like to, to live or it would cause them to ask you questions about it. That's enough. Let's pray as a group. You can get your kids. If you need prayer, if the Holy Spirit has like showed you some stuff today and you need prayer, come up front. You're not getting any candy, but you can come up front and we will pray. Maybe we'll have candy for front rowers next week too. Father, we do thank you for your word. And wow, it's a, it's a hammer, Lord. And I hope it is. I, I hope your Holy Spirit is just causing people to wrestle. Lord, maybe somebody here, maybe somebody not, maybe somebody years from now. And, and you've convicted them. You've shown them your, that, that they're a sinner and they need a Savior. Or that they would believe on you and place their faith in you and trust in you and ask you to forgive their sins because you live today. We read that. You're alive forevermore and you defeated death. And Lord, we're so grateful. Lord, there's others of us that have called ourselves Christians and man, that, that thought of the Bema seat. Lord, living lives where maybe we received a gift for you but then continue to live for ourselves and we got nothing to bring before you. Even the good stuff was done for us and not you. Lord, may today be a day, not of discouragement and defeat, but one of um, a call to arms, Lord. An encouragement to redeem the time and live for you. Just persuade others, Lord. Those that are being saved, and those that are perishing. May that burn in our hearts this week. May we invite others, Lord, to hear about you and your resurrection next Sunday. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.